0: This is the Austin Life Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at austinlifechurch.com. Hey, good morning, friends, family, countrymen. Um, so glad that you are here with us, Austin Life Church. Um, if you haven't heard, uh, our mission statement is to lead people to life in Jesus. Um, we, we are convinced that... Uh, as people, we are all wanting to make the most out of life, um, and we, we believe that that life is found in knowing and, and loving and trusting Jesus and in surrendering our lives to Him and His way. And so that's, that is the sole focus that we want to have as a church, is to um, help people know and, and find life in Jesus. Um, we also believe that at some point in life— um, we have, really, it's its a many times in life where we're going to have the choice of of letting go of one thing in order to grab onto another. Um, you can only hold tightly to one thing at a time. I realize there's two hands, I get that, but, but just roll with me. You can only really hold, I can only hold tightly to one thing at a time. I can't hold tightly to something else at the same time. Um, there's a story that you've probably heard on how um, old, old hunters, or I don't even know what, you know, trappers, uh, would catch monkeys. Um, and, and monkeys were very elusive and, and quick creatures, and so they, they came up with this creative way to catch monkeys, that if you take a, a jar um, in which the, the, the opening of the jar was big enough for them to put their, their hand in, um, and you put something in the jar, I have candy in this jar because I like candy, you put something in the jar that is enticing to the monkey, that they'll grab hold of it, but now with a fist, they can't, they can't get their hand out of the jar. And so the monkey's left with the choice. Do I let go of what this enticing thing is inside the jar, and thus free to go live life again, or do I hold on tightly to what it is in the jar, and, and, and that now has control over me. Um, and so they found that they could do that with monkeys and they, they were so enticed by what was in the jar that they would just hold on and, and just stay there because they couldn't get their hand out without letting go of what was in the jar. And, and so here's the deal. We, we can only hold tightly to one thing at a time. There's only one thing at the top of our lives that matters most. And in order to hold on tightly to something else, we're going to have to let go of that if we want to grab on to to something else. Uh, This is the question in Acts 19, uh, which is where we are today, Acts chapter 19. This is the the question that comes to the, the people in Ephesus, is will you let go of what you're holding on to in order to grab hold of and hold on to Jesus? That's the question that they get faced with. In this chapter, we see... Paul bring the message of Jesus, the the gospel, the hope of Jesus to both religious and irreligious people, to to people who, who were churchy and people who weren't. And the same opportunity was given. Will you let go of what you're holding tightly to in order to hold tightly to Jesus? Because you can only hold tightly to one thing at a time. So starting in Acts chapter 19, I want to start reading together. It says in in verse 1, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So Paul, he, he comes to Ephesus, and he comes bringing the message of Jesus. And the, the first people that he interacts with, we see in verse 1, are, are disciples. Di- disciples are simply devoted learners and followers. We're, we're all disciples of, of something, of someone. We're, we're learning and following their way. We're following that pattern. Um, in, in this case, we see from verse 3, uh, that they were baptized into John's baptism. So they were, they were disciples of John the Baptist. Uh, John the Baptist came before Jesus and, and was teaching people of, of the one to come, and they, they followed John's ways. So we can deduce from this that these disciples were, were religious people. John the Baptist, he knew his Bible. He was raised in the way of knowing the Bible. They were Religious. They, they most likely went to church and worshiped and, and were moral and upright people. Yet, Paul interacts with them and, and realizes that while they have a, a real and sincere faith, their faith is in the wrong thing. They're, they're disciples of the wrong person, they're trusting in the wrong thing. Verse, verse 2 is what, what stops me initially. So he, he finds some disciples and he says to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, why would Paul ask them this question? All right, like I've never asked anybody that question. I've never been asked that question. Have you been asked that question? Have you, like, uh, why, why would he ask that question? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? Take a second and, and ask yourself that question. If someone came up to you today and asked you, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What would you what would you say? Do you have a confident yes, or maybe, or like them, no? What would you say to that question? So I was just wondering, why in the world would Paul ask this? This is the only time he's asked this question. We've not seen him ask this question to other disciples. Why is he, he asking this? It's tough to speculate exactly um, what is, is going on, but... But what the Bible teaches is that when someone truly trusts in Jesus, that the Spirit of Jesus comes and literally indwells them. That that the Spirit of of God, the Holy Spirit, comes and, and lives in them. And there is a tangible, noticeable, palpable change in that person. Ephesians 1 Paul, when he writes a letter back to this church in Ephesus, many years later, he's writing back to these same people. And he he says in Ephesians chapter 1, In him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. Paul says, when you believed in Jesus, the Holy Spirit came and filled you and sealed you and protected you as a follower of Jesus until that day. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, but you will receive power. You'll receive my power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In Acts chapter 10, when Peter is sharing the gospel with Cornelius and his family, it says that when they believed, the Holy Spirit fell on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying, actually just like these disciples do later. There's a tangible evidence of the Holy Spirit in a person. The Bible teaches that upon true faith in Jesus alone, that the Spirit of God is literally sent to to indwell you the, the spirit of the one who created all things who sustains the whole cosmos who who knows all the stars and commands where they go the spirit of the one who who gave sight to the blind and gave healing to the lame, the spirit of the one who parted the Red Sea, the spirit of the one who raised Jesus from the dead, that powerful spirit of the God of this world comes and indwells you. That that makes someone fundamentally different. There is a change in a person that that Paul should see and notice. Think think of Spider-Man right? Of course, this is where we go. Spider-Man, right? Like he's a, he's a normal human and then he gets bit by a, a mutant spider and he is fundamentally different. There is something different coursing through his body and giving him different, you know, manifestations and power. And, and there's a tangible difference. And this was just a, a, bo- a high school boy bit by a mutant spider. What about the God who created the mutant spider, right? Like the power that creates that. And I realized that that spider is not real. And the Spider-Man is just, I, I get it. It's just a story. But you know what I'm saying, right? Like like Peter uh, peter Parker was fundamentally different. There was something in him that made him different. And Paul in the Bible teaches that when we trust Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we become a new creation. Yes, I'm still flesh and bones. I'm still Corey, but there is something fundamentally new and different in me, and it's the Holy Spirit of God. And for someone who's trusted Christ, there should be tangible evidence that the Holy Spirit fills them. They are a different person. And so I think Paul spent some time with these disciples, and something's going off. And he's saying, you're, you're either missing something, or or you're demonstrating a life that doesn't show You've been changed by the Spirit. Something is off. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit? So, what was he looking for? Right? Like, what did he see or what did he not see? What, and, and at this point, it, it's pure speculation. But what we see in the Bible is the evidence of the Spirit in a person. Galatians 5 says the fruit of the Spirit, what comes out of a person who truly has the Spirit of God, is an increase of love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and goodness, and kindness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. In Colossians 3, that the evidence of, of a changed person is humility, and compassion, and forgiveness, just as God has forgiven In James, we see a willingness and a desire to confess and repent of sin that grieves the Spirit. In in Romans and 1 Corinthians, we see gifts of the Spirit of, of miracles and healing and speaking in tongues and prophecy and service and teaching and administration. There is a tangible difference. That a person legitimately is looking more and more and more and more like Jesus. And so Paul must have seen something off. In Ephesians chapter 2, we see an emphasis on, on love, loving unity that it doesn't matter if you were Jew or Greek or slave or free or male or female or rich or poor or sick or healthy. It doesn't matter that if we, if we follow Jesus, we're all united under the name of Jesus by grace. Therefore, we have the love of Jesus in us to selflessly love one another. And so perhaps Paul is looking at these disciples of John the Baptist and seeing that they don't love their neighbor well, and he's going, that doesn't look like the Spirit of God. Do you have the Spirit of God that loves your neighbor? So, the question must be asked, do we have the Spirit of God? Is our life increasingly looking like Jesus? Would we say that, that love is greater, joy is greater, peace is greater, that, that those things of, of the holy living God in us by his Spirit, that we are tangibly, noticeably, different. That's the evidence, the marker of a true Christian. And Paul, he's like, whoa, hold on. Do you have the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard of the Holy Spirit. So then Paul follows up with the next question in verse three, what were you baptized into? And they say into John's baptism. Baptism is a public declaration and a picture of of a person's faith. Based on a person's baptism, what they believe about baptism will tell you a lot about their faith, what they believe or who they trust in. It's a, it's a story. It tells what their faith is. So some baptisms today are a means to remove original sin. Some people, their faith believes that by being baptized, the original sin that they're born with is washed away. So they trust in the act of baptism to forgive that sin. Other people uh, have baptisms in order to, to hopefully save dead family members or friends. and So they'll be baptized on behalf of the dead, believing the faith that their baptism accomplishes forgiveness for the dead. Others are baptized as a way to protect them from the devil, believing that it it seals them, the water seals them from the the devil. What we see in baptism is a proclamation of someone's faith. It says what they believe in. And so my question to you, to everyone listening, would be, have you been baptized? If so, into what? What what does your baptism say that you believe in and trust in? If you haven't been baptized, why not? what's holding you back. The New Testament, Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The New Testament doesn't recognize a person who claims to be a Christian and has not been baptized. It it doesn't make sense. It would be like a person believing in Santa Claus, yet not practicing, you know, gift sharing on Christmas, right? Like, they'd be like, that doesn't make sense. Someone in the Bible who says, I'm a Christian, but hasn't been baptized in the name of the triune God, it doesn't make sense. And so if you call yourself a Christian, but you haven't been baptized, the Bible would ask you why. What's, that doesn't make sense. And this, these guys, these folks were baptized into John's baptism. Uh, This is John the Baptist, and he baptized, it says in verse 4, he baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. And so people would come up to John and they would say, I want to be baptized. And he would say, why? And and they would say, because I believe that there's a Messiah coming, that there's a salvation coming that will forgive me of my sins and make me right with God. They are repenting from a being saved by their works, and they're trusting that that one day a Messiah will come that they will trust in, who will forgive their sins and make them right. So John's baptism was looking forward to a coming Messiah. So look, it had great intentions. John's baptism had good intentions. It had a heart of faith and repentance, but it was looking forward to the coming Savior And the problem with John's baptism at this point is that the Savior had come. So they were still looking forward to a Savior, and the Savior had already come and lived and died and risen from the dead. They didn't know that the baptism they were looking for was a baptism in Jesus. And so they were still waiting and looking. So when they were baptized in in, in John's baptism, they, they, they believed, they were dipped underneath the water, believing that one day their sins would be washed clean. And yet a baptism in Jesus' name says that they believe in faith as they're dipped underneath the water. It's a picture that their sins already had been washed clean by the work of Jesus. So there's a huge difference in the two baptisms. One believes one day they'll be forgiven. The other believes that Jesus already came to forgive and they're already forgiven. So there's a huge difference there. Now, you may ask, what's the big deal? Right? Like these disciples had good intentions. They were baptized. They, they repented. They had good intentions. Their heart was good. They just, they just didn't know that Jesus was the answer. They just, didn't, they just didn't know. No one had told them yet. So what's the, what's the harm? What's the big deal? I took a test once in, in high school, a math test, and math was always a strong suit of mine. Um, and so I went into this test expecting to, to ace it. I was like, I, I got this, you know, it's gonna be hundred. And I took this test, when I got the test back, I got a 95, I got two problems wrong. So I, I went up to the teacher and I said, hey, like, I see that, that you, these wrong and I, I get it, but I, I really tried. I had good intentions. I, I, I wanted to get 100, I believed that, that I could. I, I, I had good intentions, I really wanted to, I just got them wrong. Can we, can we just give me credit for it? And she was like, no, you got it wrong. You see, wrong actions with good intentions are still wrong actions. So just because they have good intentions, it's, it, it doesn't carry any weight unless it's followed up with the right actions, with the repentance that shows true faith in the right object, Jesus. And that was the problem here. They had faith, a real faith, but it was in the wrong thing. They believed the Messiah was coming, but... They didn't know that Jesus was that one. They believed that they could be saved and forgiven, but they didn't know that Jesus came and did everything necessary for their sins to be forgiven. They didn't know that Jesus lived the perfect life they were supposed to live. They didn't know that Jesus then, as the perfect sacrifice, died on the cross to take all of their sins away. They didn't know that Jesus was buried so that their sins could be buried as well. They didn't know that Jesus rose from the dead so that they could be given the new life that Jesus has. They were looking forward to that coming Savior, but they didn't know that Jesus was the one. And so their faith was in the wrong thing. They had good intentions, but it was in the wrong place. And so Paul tells them, no, no, the answer is Jesus. That's what you're looking for. That's where the answer is. And they hear the gospel of Jesus and they place their faith in Jesus. And then they're baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They're dipped underneath the water as a picture that their sins have been buried with Jesus. And they come out of the water as a picture that just as Jesus rose from the dead and is living, they are a new creation and they are going to live in Christ as well. And the Holy Spirit comes on them and they are transformed and changed. So my question here, right? These are religious people. These are, these are good intentioned people. It's a theme we see in Acts. People that we would see and assume they're Christians, yet they were, just, they were, they were missing something. They were, they were off. Their faith was in the wrong thing. My question to you is what is your faith in? What are you trusting in? Is it, is it Jesus alone? Or is it Jesus plus anything else? I've, I've told my story before. I, when I was seven, I, I prayed a prayer to ask Jesus into my heart, um, and, and I got baptized, and, um, but I was always afraid. What if I got it wrong? What if I prayed this prayer wrong and God didn't hear me? What, what, if, what if I missed it? And so I would just pray this prayer over and over and over and over and over again, you know, believing in Jesus, but also believing that I had to pray this prayer in order for my sins to be forgiven, for me to be made right with God. And then when I was 15 and I was at camp, I came to realize that the prayer didn't matter. It didn't matter if I prayed this prayer. It didn't matter if I got the the right words or the wrong words. What mattered is did I trust Jesus alone to do everything necessary for me to be made right with God? If I trusted in Jesus alone, I could pray a prayer or not. It doesn't matter. Jesus is what saves me. Not Jesus plus my prayer not Jesus plus going to church, not Jesus plus being a good person, not Jesus plus having this emotional feeling, Jesus alone. And so the question to ask these disciples, the question to ask us is, if you stand before God, what allows you to be in his presence? If your answer in your heart is truly anything other than Jesus, then then I would challenge you and say, I think perhaps your faith is in is in the wrong place. It may be good intentions and it's just maybe in the wrong place, but the invitation is given. Surrender that. Let go of that. Don't hold tightly to religion and tradition, hold tightly to Jesus alone. And he will forgive your sins and give you life. That's the invitation these guys are given. They trust Jesus and their life is changed. But then As we continue on down in verse 11, we see that Paul brings the gospel to a completely different set of people. The the complete opposite side, the irreligious. They didn't go to church with these disciples. They weren't religious or spiritual people like these disciples. They were the complete opposite. I'll read this fast and, and try to go through it quickly. In verse 11, it says, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. That's some pretty powerful miracles. And, and the Bible says they're extraordinary, but I do believe that God's power can still work like that today, and does still work like that today. Anyways, it says in verse 13, Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Right? So they're trying to just use the name of Jesus in order to, to cast out these demons. The same way that Paul was, right? And verse 14, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I recognize. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Look, here's the deal. If it's one versus seven, and the seven leave the fight naked and beat up, they got trounced. Like, it wasn't even a fight. Man, it just wasn't even close. And so this is, what, this is what's happening. There, there's probably a lot we can say, but what is happening here? Ephesus was a very dark city. The, the, the primary faith was magic and sorcery and the occult. It was the home of the goddess Artemis. They had a temple for the goddess Artemis that in the ancient world was one of the seven wonders of the world. It was so magnificent, so big. Their livelihood was wrapped up in the magic arts and in sorcery and in the worship of Artemis. It's, it's how they made their wealth and their prosperity. And, and so it was a dark And then Paul comes in with the name of Jesus, and and Jesus is so powerful that even the hanky of Paul is is defeating the demonic, is defeating and overpowering the magic arts, right? And so these other seven sons, they're like, okay, cool, right? Like, let's use this Jesus guy, We'll, we'll be powerful too. The problem was that they didn't actually have the power of Jesus in them, they just wanted to use and abuse it. And so there's a huge difference between the power that's in Paul, the tangible presence of Jesus versus these other people who are no different than using magic arts and spells and sorcery. And what the people of Ephesus are seeing is that this this person of Jesus, the Spirit of God in these people is greater than everything else they had trusted in everything else they had devoted their lives to, that this Jesus is greater, that he's bigger and more powerful. And perhaps their faith, what they've been holding tightly to, was the wrong thing as well. And so you may be looking at this and saying, man, I don't, I don't practice magic. Like, I'm not, I'm not a sorceress or a part of a, of a cult. What does this have to do with me? And what we see, though, is that more than magic what mattered most to the Ephesians was wealth and prosperity. In, in verse 24, we see a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, the goddess. And it was a huge source of wealth. And so he gathered up a crowd and began a mob and a riot because he was like, hey, too many people are trusting Jesus. And if they keep trusting Jesus, they're not going to buy our idols and our shrines, and we're going to lose our wealth from this magic arts and from Artemis. And so this, this can't happen. And so, so really what was put in the jar for most of the Ephesians was, was wealth. They would reach their hand in and they would grab hold of wealth and prosperity and they, they used the magic arts and the worship of Artemis as a way for them to get their wealth. It was a, a way of a livelihood for them. But Paul's coming in and showing that what they're holding on to was lesser that that Jesus was greater, and so they have a choice. They can let go of their wealth and the magic arts and and everything that they had built their life around. They could let go of the wealth and grab hold of Jesus, or they could continue to hold on to their wealth. Now, we see here in verse 17, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. This encounter of the Spirit of God overpowering the demons. And both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So they start praising Jesus. They start saying, man, Jesus is greater. Jesus is the way. They start singing his songs and going to church, and they're like, Jesus, 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 right? Now, here's the thing. It's one thing to, to go and say Jesus is great and to want Jesus to be great. It's another thing to repent of what we're holding tightly to to lay it down and surrender it to Jesus, and, and, and then hold tightly to Jesus. It's one thing to say, I want to follow Jesus, but I don't want to let go of my, my wealth. That matters more. It's, it's, I want to follow Jesus, but my reputation and image is also really important, and I don't want to let that go. I don't want to confess my sins. I like Jesus. Jesus is great, but I like my sexuality as well. And I don't want to let go of what my sexuality is in order to follow what Jesus says. I like Jesus, but, but I want to call the shots. I want to be in control of my life. And I don't want to let go of control in order to give that to Jesus. So it's one thing to extol Jesus, but true faith is willing to let go and surrender everything else in order to be free and grab hold of Jesus. And we see here in verse 18 and 19 that many of those who were new believers came confessing and divulging their practices. True faith in Jesus is willing to repent and to confess because they know that in Jesus there's forgiveness. In Jesus they're made right and it they don't have to be living in secret or hiding anymore. They can confess and divulge everything knowing that Jesus will make them new. And so they come and confess and divulge their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So they're holding on to these magic books, to the magic arts, because in this magic and in this sorcery in this occult is where they have their wealth. And then they're presented with the opportunity of following Jesus. But Jesus says, you got to let go of everything else that you hold on tightly to and hold tightly to me. I've got to be what matters most. And they evidence their faith by repentance. By letting go of their books. And they come and they burn their books of incredible wealth and value. 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, now you and I don't. Don't operate in pieces of silver much. So it's like, well, was that a lot? Like, what did they they surrender a lot? Two points of reference Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. 50,000 pieces of silver would equate to, in that day, about $7 million. They're literally burning their wealth and prosperity. They're surrendering all because they've seen and believe that Jesus is better. It's no problem to surrender and to let go when we truly believe that Jesus is better. It's no problem to lay down our, our preferences, what runs deep within us, when we believe that Jesus is better and that he will make everything better anyways. It, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's this simple, oh, flip a switch. You know, yeah, I'll lay it all down. I'm done done with all that, right? Like there, there's gonna be a challenge with something that runs deep, but but there's a willingness and a joy and a surrender to let go. I mean, it might've been tough for them to bring their books and to throw them on the fire. It's a lot of money and a lot of wealth. It's what they spent their life believing. It ran deep. But when they see the value of Jesus and they see that he is better, true faith, I mean, it may be a challenge, but it believes that Jesus is better and it lets go and surrenders. And so we've got to ask the question, is there anything that we are not surrendering to Jesus? Is there anything that we are holding tightly to? Because if so, and we're unwilling to surrender it, then we can't hold tightly to Jesus. We can't find the life in him. We've got to let go of that and then find life in Jesus. So we want you to ask that question. Is there anything you're unwilling to surrender? Your your career, your future and dreams, your sexuality, your wealth, your tastes and appetites. What we see here is that Jesus is better. He's gonna be better. He offers eternal and abundant life That far outweighs the value of anything else. So we see that many here trust Jesus. And if you want to continue to read Acts 19, as you keep going, you see Demetrius form this mob and this riot, and some don't. Some hold tightly to their wealth. They're unwilling to let go. And the Bible says that they will miss the eternal and abundant life that comes through Jesus. So we're here in 2020. Maybe we don't practice magic. Maybe we do. But it's the same. I think there's many people listening today who have held tightly to religion their whole lives. And the invitation is to let go of religion, tradition, and just hold on to Jesus. Yeah, that we're going to be religious. We're going to follow Jesus in, in worship and in the Bible and, and in practice, but our religion is not what saves us. The fact that we were born into a Protestant family or a Catholic family or a, you know, we, a religious family, that doesn't, that doesn't save us. The fact that we do religious, it doesn't save us. Only Jesus removes our sins. Only faith in him and surrender of our lives to him removes our sins and gives us life. Have you been baptized to demonstrate that faith as an act of obedience to say that your faith is in Jesus? Are there things that you're unwilling to let go of? That what's kept you from a life with Christ is that you're unwilling to surrender something in your life, a part of your life. And if you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that that we don't grab back hold of things. Just because we've let go and surrendered to Jesus, that, that jar, that temptation, that enticement is still there. And there's times where we go, I want to I call the shots and be in control of my life. I want to be prideful. And we grab hold of this again, and, and Jesus is saying, no, don't do that. You've tasted, you've seen, you know, let go. We want to grab hold of our preferences. We want to grab hold of what feels good and, and seems good to us. And, and the invitation is to surrender all because Jesus is better. Life with Him is better. And I realize that it may not feel that way right now. It may seem daunting and uncertain. It may feel like you're in the shadow of death. But the promise of the Bible that is true and good is that green pastures and still waters only come when the true shepherd of Jesus leads us. When He leads us to that place. Have faith and step out and trust Him that He's good and He's worth it. And he will carry you to the end. We see the city of Ephesus, it, it changes and becomes a major stronghold for Christ. I believe that can happen in our city today, but only through Jesus, only by proclaiming the gospel, by truly surrendering all to Him and to loving Him. Would you repent? Would you, would you lay down anything. I love this quote, one hole in a boat will sink the boat just as much as 10 holes in a boat. It may just take a little longer, but it'll still sink the boat. Don't hold tightly to anything. Let it go. Trust Christ. Surrender to him. Let's pray. Father, we believe that you are here and present, and you're in our living rooms, you're in our um, kitchens, or outside, wherever we are listening to this. God, you are present, and um, Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Open our ears to hear Your Word, Your voice, hearts to believe, trust You. Wherever you are right now, I want to take, I want to invite you to take a minute, and would you push aside the distractions and everything else going on? Would you? Take a breath. And fix the the eyes of your mind and your heart upward towards heaven. And just listen for God. Ask Him to speak to you. To reveal to you anything you may be holding on to. To give you the strength and the faith to trust in Jesus alone. God, as we continue to worship today and as our days continue, would you let us taste and see, experientially, tangibly, taste and see how good you are so that the things of this world will lose their flavor because we've tasted something better. Thanks for tuning in to the Austin Life Church Podcast. To help support us, please take a second to rate and review us on iTunes and visit us at austinlifechurch.com.